2: and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he plays Mr. Orfeo the Boulder so that he can say the Boulder is no longer conflicted. It's Matt Morgan. I,
1: I don't know what your joke was supposed to be and I, I have lost all train of thought on what mine was supposed to be. <laughs> I know, <sighs> but I'm okay with it. I am no longer conflicted about it. I <laughs> I you you I, Whatever you've done, you've done your job right.
2: I'm glad. I'm glad. Do you remember your intro joke? I know that they're very important
1: to you. They are important to me. So uh, there was a news story, actually, um, locally. It's not really a joke. It's just more of a sad story um, about a a Zamboni driver who went missing, and uh, he's yet to resurface.
2: (laughs) Well, our jokes have gone over each other's heads, but I hear Dana giggling about it.
1: (laughs) Joe, you're from Seattle. You're supposed to know about ice rinks and, and how they zamboni the, the 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 plane we are all so off just just go to dana man
2: okay okay let, let, let's do that then. <laughs> i like that we have accomplished finally the two ships in the night jokes going past each other with this we. episode it's terrific it's absolutely terrific anyway up next he finds it odd that casualties of war doesn't have the casualty mechanic
0: it's dana roach um, i just kind of realized this week that i don't trust stairs they're just always up to something <laughs> The whole thing gets me down (laughs) well the worst ones the worst ones are the ones that are up to nothing yes
2: (laughs) wow oh goodness man y'all y'all have the type of humor that like i have a cold right now but y'all might be the tonic that i needed for exactly this type of thing (laughs) i think i think you're using
0: air quotes on humor there joey that's fair. That's fair.
2: But you know what? At least we got your joke. So Matt and I may not understand each other this episode, but at least we understood where you were coming from. <laughs> anyway, this is the EDH Recast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data just a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode?
0: We are going to be talking about lands we don't play anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah, this was a, an episode subject that you had put forward, and what I'm worried... Yeah, the, that the you're answer going is basics, say, I think. Yes.
0: So.
2: <laughs> 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 I'm worried that you're going to say, yeah, mountain and island, I don't really play those much anymore. But no, yeah, we want to talk about some color-fixing lands and some utility lands as well that just we used to play a lot of in our decks, but that have over the years kind of filtered out of our decks and why that might be the case. It should be pretty interesting to look over that commander deck building history and see what's going on with our mana bases. Uh, Real quick, before we get into our main episode, though, I want to pause and thank Chase, a.k.a. Manacurves, for assisting me with the post-production work on the podcast. And, of course,
0: we want to thank our sponsors for the show as well. The EDH Recast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. They're like buying a draft booster and finding collector booster contents inside. (laughs) Just go to the site and select the card you wish to purchase and then choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show.
1: And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, but still getting yourself some awesome perks, you can do so over at patreon.com slash edhretcast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. And you can get all sorts of perks depending on what you want, whether you want to join the Discord community, whether you want to see all the episodes a day early, or you want some exclusive swag that we send out every now and then. You can do all of that and more over at patreon.com slash edhretcast and you can even get yourself the perk of being the weekly patron shout-outs that we do every single week, which this week, of course, goes to Pierre-Luc Caron. So thank you so much, Pierre, for your support. We appreciate it so much. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're reaching international borders here now with the uh, the extensive reach of this, this luscious voice of ours. <laughs> Lush, luscious voice. Luscious, luscious she- <laughs> voice. Smooth, dulcet tones.
2: On the week that I have a cold, you're, you're talking about like dulcet tones? Like... I don't know, dude. I, I'm not sure if I've got the most dulcet going on right
1: now. <laughs> uh, well, give yourself more credit, Joey. It's it's always just, just so
2: smooth. <laughs> Thank you. I, I super appreciate it. And Pierre, we really, really appreciate you. Thank you so, so much for your support. Okay, fellas, let's get into our main topic now. We are talking about those lands that we are no longer playing in our EDH decks. They were at one point in our decks, and over time, we've just kind of been taking them out of our decks. And why is that the case? Uh, real quick before we get into the episode, I think it would be fair for us to put out some disclaimers here of like, just because these are lands that we're no longer playing doesn't mean they're lands that we think people shouldn't play generally. And there may be some uh, some exceptions where we are still playing a handful of some of these lands in one or two decks, but as a broad category, they tend to be things that we've removed over time. Um, you know, there are good reasons to play any of these lands First and foremost, budget, like always play to your budget. These are just some personal experiences that we wanted to share and discuss what our journey has looked like in the hopes that it is helpful to folks who are listening in. And and frankly, there may even be some lands that we don't talk about at all because we never played them in the first place, too. So that's just some stuff to be mindful of. But fellas, I guess I just want to ask, generally, as we move into this category of, um, these lands that we're no longer playing, are there sort of like broad rules that you have maybe about stuff that you no longer put into your mana base?
0: I think the first kind of broad category we can maybe talk about here a little bit are the uh, come into play tapped dual lands Mm. that have some kind of a little like gift attached to them to offset the fact that they come into play tapped. (laughs) And I think these are ones nobody, at least we didn't generally play as a rule unless there was some exception. Um, And these also tend to oftentimes be uncommon lands that are many times in packs just for like fixing and draft or whatever. So I'm thinking of things like the life gain lands that used to show up in Zendikar or maybe the Vivids or the Guild Gates. Mm. So those are like the kind of three big cycles. Well, there's there's multiple other cycles like that over the years we've gotten that, that come into play tapped. And for the most part, unless you're playing on a budget or... They interact with your deck in a specific way. People tend to not be running them. They were never like a cycle that people weren't excited about in the first <laughs> place. You know, the, the cons life gain lands are maybe useful in a deck that cares about life gain. But outside that, people generally aren't like first picking that to, to put in their, their first draft of their deck.
1: Yeah, that, that as a category in general, just anything that comes into play tapped no matter what, those are always going to be something that are generally thought of as a, a first cut when it comes to a possible upgrade in your mana base just because, hmm. yes, sometimes there are some some added bonuses or sometimes if you're playing a gates deck, then yeah, absolutely play your gates because you, you need as many guild gates as you can get your hands on. But for the most part, yeah, uh, stuff like the 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 gain lands from Konzotark here that Dana, you talked about. Those, I used to actually keep on hand fairly often, but I just, I found myself cutting those from more and more decks just because Wizards of the Coast gives us so many more great land cycles. There's a huge difference between like the Urborg volcanoes that just, (laughs) they're dual and it comes into play tapped and there's no benefit to them at all versus stuff like the temples, for example, Mm. uh, where you do get some slight advantage. You get to scry one whenever a Temple of Silence comes into the battlefield versus just coming into play tapped in, in no additional benefit or gaining one life or mm-hmm. whatever those very, very minor benefits are. There it's, there's a big difference to me between coming to play tapped no matter what, there's no benefit at all versus something marginal. Very fair, very fair. And, and for the record, actually, like this is a distinction that I'll make.
2: Like The temples do come into play tapped, but they let you scry. And generally, I've still been pretty good with temples, I would say. I still played them in my two-color decks, and I think I also have uh, the appropriate color temples for my Yanet deck, because that is a deck that cares about, uh, you know, manipulating the top card of my library. But Dana, I think that the temples are possibly, like, your inspiration for this episode topic, uh, because I don't think that you like playing these at all anymore. Do you kind of view them in the same way as those other top lanes that you just described? They have
0: definitely been a cycle that's moved from the category of lands I... Only uh, th- That I would put in almost every deck, because once upon a time they were. I-, I put scry lands in all of my decks. Hmm. But since they were first released way back in that first Thero set, we've just gotten another uh, enough other cycles of dual lands that I like better that something kind of had to give... And that's kind of the poster child, at least for me, of cycles that have moved from that category of lands I want to use to the kind of Guildgate gate category where they are ones I'm only considering if, say, I have something that would care about top deck manipulation or, or whatever. So they, they've definitely like made that transition from my, my go-to lands when, when I'm building a deck to lands I'm just never considering unless I happen to need that scry effect in that particular deck.
1: I actually don't mind temples. Still, uh, they're fine if they're just something that I need an extra land for, need a little bit of extra fixing. I'm not actively looking to cut them. I, I would put them probably on the the upper tier as far as stuff that's going to come into play tapped but you're going to get a benefit out of it. I, I like them a lot more than the Gain Lands. <laughs> and there are some Dual land cycles. There's um, there's some that I, like the Shadow Lands or whatever we ended up calling those oh. from Shadows over Innistrad. That entire cycle, I don't think I ever considered those because of all the hoops you have to jump through. <laughs> you may as well just like take the Scry, get everything come into play tapped, whatever. Uh, that's something that, that that's a cycle. I've just I've never put over the the temples full stop.
2: That's a really interesting comparison. And Matt, I think I do agree with you, like the port towns or in the uh, mm-hmm. in Strixhaven, they were the snarl lands, which just. So, yes, yeah, Joey, you, you call them snarl lands. I just call them bad. <laughs> well, that's just it. You look at them and you do snarl are kind of not all that good. Uh, the Strixhaven versions and the Innistrad versions where you have to reveal a land of a certain type from your hand in order for them to come into play. Uh, untapped. And so most of the time, they do kind of just, like, enter tapped. And I'm like, well, if it's gonna enter tapped anyway, I'd rather scry. Because, like, you know, look at the top card. If it's good, I'll keep it. If it's bad, thank goodness I didn't have to draw that one. Um, so I, I think that I kind of side with you there. Dana, I can already hear. I bet that you don't like the Shadowlands or the Snarls all that much like us. Um, but it is interesting to see your your, your placement of the, the temples compa- in comparison, I think.
0: Well, what was interesting in the the lands from from of Innistrad, that, that cycle... Um, When they first came out, those five, I I did put Mm. them in decks and and I was still running the temples at the time. So I still had enough room in my decks for for that many more duels. So they bumped something else out. But very quickly, and and I think it was at Amonkhet when we got the the cyclers that were fetchable. Mm. Um, that's what knocked the shadows lands out of my deck. So like they had, they had a window of uh, like, you know, six months ish or so where I think I had them and most of the decks that could run them. And when those, those cyclers came that were fetchable, I immediately was like, well, something has to go. And those shadows lands immediately left all of my <laughs> decks and were replaced with the, the Amonkhet cyclers. That's very fair. I think there's exactly one deck where I'm still playing
2: one of these shadows slash snarl lands, and that's my Feather the Redeemed deck, because that is a deck that cares very, very, very much about the exact number of pips uh, going on in the spells that I cast. Like, I have a lot of cards that are either one red mana or one white mana, so having enough color fixing and switching back and forth between the two colors tends to be a bit of a struggle in that deck. So I am still risking, I think it's called Fury Calm Snarl, which is just a a meal of a name. Absolutely. So I think I'm still playing it there in my feather deck, but like I'm eager to remove that. This is not a land that I care very much for. Now, Dana, you just mentioned the um, Ket cycling lands. They are dual lands that enter tapped, but you can cycle them. I really like those specifically because, as you said, they're fetchable. Because you, they have two land types, so you can go and grab them. If you play like a Farseek or something like that, they can grab the appropriate type. But when it comes to the fetchables... There is a type of fetch land that I don't like very much, and I want to see if you guys are on the same page as me. Do y'all like the slow fetches at all? Like the rocky tar pits and the grasslands of the world? They enter tapped, they can sacrifice to go and find like a swamp or a mountain in the case of rocky tar pit, and then they put that onto the battlefield and then you shuffle. Like, what do you think about those? Because I have some feelings.
0: I've never ran them in decks out of like, you know, maybe a pre-con league or something where I have them (laughs) and any experience I've had with them accidental as it is. Has not been one I've enjoyed, so no, those, those, those aren't lands that I've liked, and I don't even lump them into the category of things that I might run, say, in a landfall deck or something. I, I don't even put them in that, yeah. that may that maybe category with the you know guild gates or something where I'd, where I'd run them in a deck that cared about gates. I, even in a landfall deck, I just don't run those those slow fetches. I, I think they are too slow, at least for for what I want to do. I'd rather just run a basic. Um, <laughs> In, in, in and that's, that's saying something, because I don't like running basics. <laughs> and and
1: that's actually, funny enough, the experience that I had. I had it in a dedicated landfall deck in a very early, early version of my my first landfall deck, which eventually just got replaced with a straight-up basic. There are so many other ways that I found you could be getting landfall triggers. Uh, At that point, it just became, you know, I can run another ramp spell. I can run something else that's going to trigger or just run a a utility land, run something like a ghost town or something like that that's going to give you a bunch of landfall triggers. I, I, at that point... I was running the Slow Fetches as a a chance for one land to get me two landfall triggers, and Ghost Town was just a way to get multiple landfall triggers out of that. So yeah, the Slow Fetches, for me, they have gotten cut out of my decks too. I'm not going to fault anybody in a landfall deck for playing them, but I also don't think that unless you're in a very budget five-color mana base, for example, or a very dedicated landfall deck, those are quite the best option around either.
2: Yeah, just they, they come in tapped and they will find you the thing. But very frequently, the land that they'll fetch for you also comes in tapped. So it feels to me like I'm getting twice as... I don't know if punished is the right word, but it feels like I'm losing two turns of tempo. And it just, ah, man, it, it is it, it is a, a tough one there for me. And it's interesting because Rocky Tarpit shows up in like just over 9,000 decks still. And like, heck, almost 20% of Lord Windgrace decks. Like, And again, good on the budget, but when it comes to finding lands that have dual types, I just don't know that I would end up using these. I feel like if you are playing Landfall, you'd want to run stuff like your Skyshroud Claims of the World or indeed your Farseeks of the World that would help you find those things instead so i just haven't been a big fan of these and it it makes me feel better to hear that you guys also don't like them because they they are certainly popular again for budget but even on a budget i don't think that i would play these because they cost you twice as much tempo as most of the other lands we'll talk about today.
0: Another cycle I would kind of lump into the the lands that I play when I need the effect versus lands that maybe once upon a time I played in a lot of decks is, is the the creature land cycle, particularly the ones back from Zendikar. But there's there's been quite a few over the years. Way back in Urza's block, we got like the fairy conclave style lands. And, you know, we just here and there get a one of like the Blink Moth slash Ink Moth Nexus in, in the different uh, Mirrodin sets. Once upon a time, particularly the dual lands, I, I tended to run those more um, in decks. And just as time has passed, the utility of being able to them into a creature really has to be something I need in that particular deck for me to run them. I, I don't run them outside of very specific situations where I, I do want to have that option to turn a land into a creature. It's It's no longer a situation where... I I just run them because I need duels. For me, I cut all those creature lands because I used to love them. They
1: were such a great just mana sink. But then it turned into they're so mana inefficient for a Mm. one-time creature animation that it wasn't really worth doing. And it's probably one of the reasons that I also cut a lot of my other utility lands like like that that have some sort of mana plus tap it to activate whatever the ability is. <laughs> Creature lands are in that category because it's just so inefficient with the mana to be doing that for a, a one-time blocker when it's often super telegraphed. It's it just, I, there were always so much better things that I would rather have been doing with my mana.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely with you guys here. Like Hissing Quagmire is a cool green black one that can animate into a death toucher. And you know what, that can be a really cool blocker. But the decks that I'm playing just haven't needed that as much. Or Raging Ravine is another one that was the cruel one that when it attacks, it can get bigger and bigger. But it's like it's four mana to activate that one in the first place. and that does kind of wear on you. I do play some creature lands in my Karazikar the Eye Tyrant deck because it's really, really funny to me to play my Karazikar and then animate one of my little lands to attack someone and get Karazakar's goad trigger. But the creature animating lands that I tend to be running are the ones like the Blink Moth Nexus or Mishra's Factory because they only cost one mana to activate. So the mana efficiency really, really helps me out there and makes them practical to actually use.
0: Very similar for me, Joey. The The only place I, I really still run them... You mentioned Hissing Quagmire. I actually run it in my Death Touch deck because it's flavorful. Hey, um, yeah, sure. But, but outside of that, really, the only place I run them is in my Azorius equipment deck. And that's because Arden is one of the partners who lets me equip stuff for free. Mm-hmm. So I- yeah. if I happen to have one of those those cheap and easy to turn into a creature lands sitting there, like the, the Nexuses or I think I have a... Um, a Fairy Conclave in there that's really cheap to turn into a creature or Mishra's Factory is in there and Muta Mutavolt is in there. Because when I play Arden, after someone board wipes, I can then just turn that to a creature for one or two mana and put four or five equipment on it with Arden's ability and swing into somebody, you know, oftentimes for lethal at that point in the game. Um, so that's, a, again, a very specific situation where the lands with a low activation cost are very good in that deck. And of course, the one where I'm doing it for flavor reasons, but th- that's really it if i'm if I'm I- in a deck, I'm just not running them as 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 duels anymore
1: yeah that that's a great example in your Arden deck where the mana inefficiency of these creature lands is just completely circumvented by the fact that your your commander is able to put yeah. all these equipment on there. That's a really good point and and there are a few very efficient like Mutafault is one of my favorite modern cards of all time. I've played that <laughs> in all my Murfolk deck. But in in Commander, (laughs) um, it, it kind of falls short.
2: In all my favorite merfolk deck, he just said, that got me good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've played many a blue spell in modern. uh, They all were creatures or a spreading seas. (laughs) There you go.
2: There you go. But no, yeah, uh, this is is another example of the mana efficiency really getting in the way. Like a very famous uh, one of these animating lands is Celestial Colonnade, which is like five mana to animate. It turns into a vigilant flyer. Um, and, And so... In my mom's flying deck, my mom has a flying uh deck. It's really, really fun to just animate like a little Blink Moth or a Fairy Conclave is another one of those lanes that she does have in there. I think she's even playing Azorius Key Rune because that can animate. And sometimes a few little bonus flyers work really, really well in that deck with the caveat that it's only when they're like one or two mana to get a little bit of extra value. Like when your lands turn into a little flying fairy and then they pump with Kangi's attack ability and you get a bit of extra damage, that's worth like one or two mana. But Celestial Colonnade, my mom sincerely looked at that card and was just like, I have no interest in this. I'm never going to use this. It's five five mana. Why would I play? five mana. I don't need this. Like the the five mana, the mana cost to activate these makes a big difference. It makes a huge impact on these animating lands.
1: So I have a category that I, I know all of us used to play. I don't know if we still play because for multiple different factors, but the cycling lands, whether it's the the one mana for a colored mana to cycle, say you pay one red to cycle your your red one away, or you can pay two colorless mana to cycle them away. There was a whole bunch of these. There's a couple different cycles. Hmm. I used to play a lot of these but I don't nearly as much anymore, except outside my Real the Everwise deck, which specifically wants to cycle a lot. Do either of you play these cycle lands anymore? Because I I find myself not.
2: So the dual color ones, yes. The mono-colored ones, I have moved away from, like the secluded steps or the lonely sandbars, the forgotten caves. Those ones I have kind of moved away from recently, um, which is interesting to me, actually, because I used to love like cycling effects with a life from the loam, which can get back the lands and you can cycle them away to draw more and life from the loam will let you dredge more. Like that was a fun thing for me for sure. But even in my monocolored decks, I'm not actually playing the cycling lands anymore. And that is kind of an interesting trend to notice myself that I the, the cards that I'm playing, I actually kind of tend to care about having enough basics left in my deck. Uh, for the different synergies that I'm using with it, like with a Cabal Coffers, for example, and, and things like that. Like, I've kind of prioritized using basics over some of these cycling cards.
0: Yeah, I do like the dual land ones, like you mentioned, Joey, because they are fetchable. That That is a big deal, being able to fetch up a dual land. The monocolor ones, the, the Lonely Sandbar-esque lands, um, not only do I not like them, I do think they're genuinely bad cards most of the time. Oh, strong. strong. And, and that's not to say always. Oh. I, I think if you're playing, you know, the the... The Gitrog Monster kind of deck, or or there's decks that definitely synergize with with the ability for you to pitch a land and do a thing. Um, but if your deck doesn't do that, I, I I think that the vast majority of the time, the tempo hit you get for for a what's functionally a basic land coming into play tapped, versus having the opportunity on turn eleven to pitch it to draw a card if you're desperate the amount of times you get burned by that tempo hit versus the amount of times you get saved by that card draw, I think you're getting burned way more than you're getting saved. Mm. Um, and, and if you're having a problem with card draw, because number one, it's not really card draw. You're just spending mana to turn your land into a chance at something else. You're not getting cards ahead. Um, but if you're having problems with draw, then address draw. Don't run bad lands on the hopes <laughs> that you can get a card in hand late in the game if you need to. Just fix your draw. Um, so yeah, I, I don't run those and I definitely think that unless you're playing in a deck with some kind of synergy, and there's plenty of decks with synergy, I don't think they're very good. Yeah. Gavi, Nest,
2: Warden, Asmorina, Mars and a Koldekar, Brawlin decks, like all of those can certainly benefit from a big discarding. For sure. Matt, you mentioned Reality Everwise earlier. Like those are terrific examples. Definitely play them there. But yeah, Dana, I think you're right. Outside of those... Just not really interested anymore.
1: Well, and, and Dana brought up a really good point. It's basically a a bad comes into play tapped basic land at that point. That it's also kind of the same reason that if it's if it's only tapping for one color and it comes into play tapped, I'm probably looking for reasons to not be playing it anymore, even just playing an actual basic. Mm. And I think that's one reason. One of my favorite cards from when I first got into Commander was Halimar Devs. That card was amazing. Hey. But I don't have it in any of my decks anymore because it comes into play tapped, and only taps for one color. Yes, it does let you help set up a couple of your next turns or your next few draws, but at the same time, you 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 do lose quite a bit of speed.
2: And, and you know what, here's an interesting thing. I said that I liked the temples earlier. Um, you know, enter tapped and, and you scry one. I used to play New Banalia, which is a mono-white enter tapped in Scry 1. And I would play that in uh, like two-color decks, but also I had a mono-white deck at one point, and I would play that there too. And I no longer do that either. I no longer play them in either of those. That is a land that I have certainly... I felt that I've outgrown. Whenever I build a mono white deck, for example, I want as many planes as possible so that I can make an Emeria, the Sky Ruin, trigger as fast as possible because it cares about how many planes you have, for example. So yeah, Matt, those monocolor entered the battlefield tapped. Ooh, it's a high bar to clear. And I guess the cycling doesn't feel like it's gotten there for me in, in any recent years at all.
0: Mm-hmm. One cycle I think that's kind of interesting to talk about here are the tainted land cycle, hmm. which isn't, I guess, a full cycle because it's only four lands. It's lands that that care about whether or not you control a swamp, but if you do, they tap for, you know, the the Tainted Isle taps for blue and a black if you control a swamp, otherwise it's just colorless. Tainted Wood taps for green and a black if you control a swamp. Um, these are ones that I, that I do still like quite a bit, assuming you're playing black, but I do think it depends on the deck. I, I think, for example, the Tainted Wood, because you're in green and you have access to the ability to fetch, um in in the way green works you know your, your nature's lords of the world to let you go and get oftentimes a dual land it's much easier to have something in play that meets that swamp requirement mm. than it than it does perhaps in in the white black one if if you are someone who can afford to run shocks in your deck that makes it way easier to uh, to ha- to have a swamp from the from the shock land too. So I think these also fluctuate wildly depending on like how crazy expensive your mana base might happen to be. Hmm. The the more expensive your mana base is, kind of the better they get. Well, the the tainted lands to me, they're kind of like cabal coffers. Hmm. How they can the power can get
1: diluted, or maybe even uh, the the newer cabal coffers. Uh, what was it? Cabal stronghold, where it gets diluted because you need those those swamps on the battlefield. Uh, So if if you're playing too many of these, especially in, I would only probably play any more in in 2022, I'd play the Tainted Lands in two color decks. I wouldn't play them in three because that's going to put more pressure on you getting a Swamp into play. So yeah, it it really depends on you being able to kind of tinker on that balance that you hinted towards Dana of, can I consistently activate the the Tainted Swamp or the Tainted, or t- of course Tainted Swamp. Don't listen to me. Uh, the, the Tainted Lands ability uh, to tap for two colors. And when you keep adding in more colors, that gets a little bit harder to get a Swamp Land into play. So yeah, I, I wouldn't play these in three color anymore. I wouldn't play them in anything more than a two color. But also, yeah, you have to be careful if you're diluting your, your mana base too much to be able to activate these reliably.
2: This is uh, the, the Tainted Isle, you know, can tap for blue if you control the swamp. I think it came in my Will Helt the Rock Cleaver pre-constructed deck. And I think I may still have it there, but I remember kind of giving it the side eye last time that I played that deck. Um, and and specifically, a reason that I haven't felt like I needed to yank it out of that deck at, at, at any point is because the Will Helt deck is a supremely, like, super lopsided in terms of color deck. Like, that is a bunch of zombies and also a handful of blue cards, but it is a bunch of zombies and nearly every one of them is a a black zombie. So I have a big surplus of swamps in the deck compared to how many islands I have or even how many uh, color fixers I need that can make blue. So that is a deck where I haven't noticed it getting in my way. But if that deck had a more even split between swamps and islands, I think that I would have yanked the Tainted Isle out of there probably immediately, probably after like my first two or three games playing with that deck, I would have noticed. Hey, this isn't as consistent as I want it to be. Um, Dana, as you mentioned, when it comes to the green, the tainted wood, that can be a little bit easier. But over time, I have noticed, you know what, every so often, this makes me stumble on an early turn. I'm not sure that that's really as helpful to me as I want. I wish that it did produce at least one type of color so that I would, you know, feel more secure with it. So, yeah, these are ones that I've fallen a little bit out of love with as well, which is unfortunate because I do like the design. But, yeah, Matt, like you mentioned, they do kind of dilute things. Like, the more of these color-fixing lands you have in your deck, the worse these types of lands actually get, which is weird.
1: Well, they, they're kind of akin to another land cycle that I I think Dana... I'm assuming you still like because they're they're kind of hipster but the filter lands the hybrid filter lands that you can they tap for a colorless on their own but you can pay one and tap them and they can tap for a blue blue or a blue and a black or a, a two black those lands I found myself cutting a lot of at the same time because they didn't do anything on on their own but also like the, at least for a long time they were Pretty expensive for a while and mm-hmm. I was wondering if you
0: guys still play any of these the, the the price point Matt really jumps out at me well I remember when I first mm-hmm. started playing so we're talking like Return to Ravnica ish was kind of at the height of of how much these cost. So I remember looking at these for a couple of decks on building. I'm like, I'm not I don't want to pay twenty-eight dollars for a Twilight Meyer. It doesn't look like it's that good of a land. I'm just not <laughs> gonna run any filters. Mm-hmm. So I didn't early on in my in my magic career. I just definitely didn't feel like they were worth what you cost. Well what they cost. Then they've had a few reprints and the price dropped down and I was able to pick quite a few of them up for, you know, the three to four dollar range. So I stocked up. Um and now they're back up to like closing in on like twenty dollars, twenty five dollars for a lot of them. <laughs> oh no. So now I'm back to the point where if I didn't have them from when I got them years ago, I probably still would be back at that point where I'm not it's not worth they're they're decent, but they're not worth the amount they cost for a deck.
2: That's that's honestly, yeah. I remember when I first was building, like my very first commander deck, when I was building the Mimeoplasm, I was like, oh, three color. And I remember getting, I think it was a Sunken Ruins that that I'd had from an old like Shadowmoor pack or something. And then I wanted to get the others. And I remember trying to pursue them and then seeing that price tag, I'm like, eh, no. And now look at me today and those cards are not in my Mimeoplasm deck anymore. I do not run them in my Mimeoplasm deck, even though at one point I had actually gone out to get them. I do have them in two color decks because they fit there. But even then I'm just kind of like, eh, you know they're there. They're not impressing me more than necessarily the check lands that I'm running or the certainly not better than the shock lands that I'm running. So like these are impressive looking lands, I think and the price on them certainly has a history but these are some lands that I I, I do kind of wish that I could have gone back in time to tell my younger self like, hey you don't need to pursue these all that actively. They're just no. fine.
1: I, I think if there's a, a mana or a land cycle that the power does not really correlate with the uh, the price, as as far as how much power they add to your deck compared to how expensive they are, uh, I would put these second behind the original dual lands. To be honest, they they look fancy, they look great, but the the amount that's actually separating them. Um, from, I believe it was in Odyssey, they had kind of a filter type of land, like Darkwater Catacombs, where they didn't tap for mana on their own, but you could tap them for two colors of, of whatever they were. Mm-hmm. I th- the separation between those is not 100x like the price would indicate.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, and honestly, like those are two interesting things to compare to each other. Like, uh, there's Shadowblood Ridge or, versus a Graven Cairns. Like, mm-hmm. those are interesting things to compare because Graven Cairns, I'm not putting that in a three-color deck. Shadowblood Ridge? I'd consider it. In fact, I think that those types of lands were even like I think that those came in the four color pre cons back in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm.
1: They they've shown up in precons fairly often, yeah.
2: Yeah, like they can be useful in a three color deck. Not necessarily like the first things I'm going to grab, but they do have a place to them because they don't require a hybrid uh, color activation to get in the first place. And they can turn a green mana into Rakdos mana, for example. Like that can be interesting. They're almost like signet lands in that way. The color fixing can be more useful to more colors. But those are both types of lands that I'm like, eh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll take a backseat on these. They are not, they are certainly not my highest priority when it comes to trying to fix my colors in my mana base. I agree. And that's some cool stuff for now. Those are some of our thoughts on certainly a lot of color fixing lands, but I, there are some other utility lands that we've stopped playing too. And we want to talk about those in this episode as well. But first, I think we're going to take a brief break, just a pause. And challenge some stats. It's just one of our favorite things to do here on the show. There's so much data on EDHREC, but sometimes we think that cards see too much or too little play, so we like to challenge those statistics. Hey, Dana,
0: how about you start us off this week with your challenge? My challenge of stats was suggested to us by listener at Val the Altaholic on Twitter. Um... And that card is Aid from the Cowl from way back in Aether Revolt. It's it's three and two green for an enchantment. It has Revolt. And at the beginning of your end step, if a permanent you controlled left the battlefield this turn, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a permanent card, you may put it onto the battlefield. Otherwise, you put it onto the bottom of your library. And the the challenge here from, from Val the Altaholic is it should be in more decks with with kind of a sacrifice and blink theme. Um, And I tend to actually agree. Number one, it's a pretty inexpensive card. You can get it for about 30 cents right now. And the ability to just put permanence onto the battlefield for actually no mana cost at all in a deck that's just doing the revolt trigger thing as part of what it's doing is a really good piece of value. Um, that's what rune decks do, they blink things, that's kind of how rune plays, and it's in only 18% of rune decks currently. Um, Emil, the the unicorn that does blink shenanigans as well, that's also a, a deck that could really take advantage of this card, it's only in 13% of those decks. Age of Cowl is a kind of forgotten piece, it's, it's now old enough, I think, that there's a whole lot of players that weren't playing during Kaladesh block, and people might not, not, not even know that card exists it's a, a really good piece of tech for that kind of deck that can generate a whole ton of value and it's available on any budget at all. So that's that's one I, I agree with um, our listener that should be showing up more frequently.
2: Does this still trigger, even if you like lost a treasure that turn because you used it for mana, does that count as the permanent leaving the battlefield?
0: It left the battlefield, it was a permanent. It absolutely does. Huh. Treasures doing things. <laughs> that's why green got treasures. Somebody... <laughs> Was was just waiting to make aid from the cowl make its move. Wow!
2: All right, I will move to my challenge here. I'm going to be talking about a weird one for of all things mill decks. So Phoenix God of Deception is a really fun mill commander that can let all of your creatures tap to mill another player equal to that creature's toughness. Um, and a card that I think should show up in more Phoenix decks here is called the Haunt of High Tower. So the Haunt of High Tower is actually a legendary creature, six mana, mono black vampire with flying and lifelink. Whenever it attacks, the defending player discards a card, but also whenever a card is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. This is a wild card that I've been considering for a couple of my decks, even though they're not mill focused. But for Phoenix specifically, this actually strikes me as being like really good. Like Phoenix is famous for playing a bunch of cards that care about the size of your opponent's graveyards, from White of Precinct 6 to Consuming Aberration. And I just think it sounds pretty fun to tap one of those creatures while the Haunt of High Tower is in play and it sees all of those cards hit the graveyard and then it gets bigger for each one of them so that then it can tap as well using Phoenix's ability to then just go ham and mill that person for nearly the same if not more like this is just a creature that gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time like if you play this and then traumatize an, <laughs> an opponent mill half their library the Haunt of High Tower gets that many plus one counters and then it can tap and mill the other half That sounds amazing to me, and yet this card only shows up in 17% of Phoenix decks. It's about $5 or so, but I mean, the card Nemesis of Reason is also about $5 and it shows up in nearly twice as many Phoenix decks, and I just feel like those numbers should be swapped. Haunted Fight Tower strikes me as a really cool reward if you care about milling stuff with toughness, so check this one out. It's a little bit weird, but it's a lot of bit fun.
1: Well, my challenge this week, uh, I'm going to pick from some of these new Kamigawa Neon, well, not new, they've been out for a little bit now, (laughs) but the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty Precon Commanders and Shorakai Genesis Engine is the commander that I want to take a look at. And a lot of folks, they seem to be running a pretty heavy vehicle theme here. So, uh, Kai uh, Genesis Engine is two and a blue and a white for an 8-8 Legendary Vehicle. Uh, You can pay one and tap it to draw two cards and discard a card. You create a colorless pilot creature token that can crew vehicles as though it uh, had power that were two greater and has a crew of eight. So it has a pretty big crew cost, but it makes a lot of tokens and then plays a lot of vehicles. So in the deck, and it came in the pre-con, Organic Extinction is a card that I'm not too sure is one that you want to be playing if you're looking for a specific board wipe. Mm. Uh, the typical Shorakai deck is making a lot of tokens and then animating some very big vehicle creatures, which is a great strategy. And then your organic extinction is a board wipe uh, that costs eight white-white and has improvised. So you can tap artifacts to help pay for the cost, kind of like Convoke, basically. Uh, and you can destroy all non-artifact creatures. The problem with that is it destroys all of those pilot tokens that you're making. And if you're using those to crew up all of your vehicles, it's going to backfire. You're going to blow up all of those tokens that you spent all your time making. So if you're doing a very heavy vehicle theme, I have an alternate board wipe that you might want to take a look at, and that is Hour of Reckoning. Uh, So that is four white, white, white for actual convoke. So not just improvise, but convoke and it destroys all non-token creatures. So if all of your vehicles are just artifacts chilling, they're not gonna be destroyed at all, but this leaves all of your uh, pilot tokens that you've been creating around so that they're able to continue crewing all your vehicles. So you can cast Hour of Reckoning, then crew your vehicles with the, the token creatures that you had that survived, and then just continue about your game plan. I think this is a board wipe that you might want to just do a, a swap one for one on. 47% of decks are still playing Organic Extinction. I think a lot of that is just going to be the, the pre-con effect that we see where the card came in Shorakai's pre-constructed deck, so it's being overrepresented. I think that's a little bit of the case, and I think that you can just make a little swap there for your board wipes. That's not going to backfire and destroy all of those tokens that you're spending a lot of effort making.
2: Matt, 100% sign me up on this challenge. Organic Extinction is a really cool card that doesn't belong in that deck. Absolutely doesn't belong in the deck. It's cool in artifact decks, but the vehicle deck is not the same thing as an artifact deck. And it's a really wild place for it to uh, have come up. But yeah, that's a cool card that doesn't need to go into Shorakai. 100% agree with you.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot of nice utility creatures in there that... <laughs> Even then, like they're they're gonna get destroyed by both of these board wipes, so you may as well just play around something that your commander's doing already. That's that's my stance. I haven't played Shorokai yet, but looking at the stats, I think this is a pretty pretty easy swap for a lot of players.
2: Completely agree. Okay, let's move now into the second half of our show. And we are again talking about lands that we stopped playing. And, and for the first half of the episode, we kind of focused on some color fixers mostly. But now let's get into some utility lands, especially maybe some colorless utility lands. Like, uh, Matt, I'll, I'll actually pass it back to you. Are there any lands that you used to put into your decks Um that aren't, weren't just there for color fixing, but that now you have kind of been like, eh, these don't really belong as much anymore. Does anything come to mind?
1: Um, mirror pool is definitely a card that I really wanted to work, especially when I had a Muldroth of the Gravetide deck. I wanted to be able to recur Mer- mirror pool over and over again. Mm. But there were a lot of things that were working against mirror pool. Um, one, it, it only makes colorless mana. It requires colorless mana to use. Mm. I just, it was, uh, that was a lot of dancing over not enough payoff. And the, the idea was, you know, yes, I could use Moldrotha to replay Mirror Pool over and over again. Just, it just, there there's a lot of, as Josh Lee Kwai would say, <laughs> there's a lot of squeezing for not very much juice. There you go. Yeah, and that is a cool effect. Like two in our colorless tap
2: sacrifice in the Mirror Pool copy one of your instant or sorcery spells or four in a colorless tap sacrifice it to put a token onto the battlefield that is a copy of target creature you control. Matt, I totally agree with you. This is a, a card that I also put into a bunch of my decks too. And if I'm playing a token deck, then maybe I'll still try to make room for it and try to justify it there because getting a token can be really cool, especially if I have ways to duplicate the token or populate the token or something like that. But the colorless requirement is tough. It Entering tapped, not giving you any colors at all is tough. But here's the real kicker for me there are so many more legendary creatures in the format now compared to when we first got this card. Like, a lot of the cards that I have in the 99 of my decks are also legendary creatures. So if I'm trying to make copies of things and they're legendary this is a tougher sell to try and duplicate your own stuff. This card is harder to make work in this year than it was compared to many years ago, just because of how many more legends are worth playing in the 99 of our decks.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have nothing to add here that wasn't already said, because I'm in the same exact boat. This was a card that at the time I picked up, you know, a handful of copies convinced it was going to be one of those, those utility lands that I ran in almost all of my decks. And just over time it has wound up working its way out i don't know if i have it in any of my decks currently i I still like it it's a super fun card Mm -hmm. but it it, it becomes one of those cards that there's been too many times where it's came into play tapped and made me feel like i couldn't do what i wanted to do that turn and then i never had a chance to really use it either on subsequent turns so it's worked its way out of my decks as a result so yeah this is definitely one that I'm, i'm on the same page with with both you guys for and I I I think I definitely undersold to
1: the the fact that it requires colorless mana to activate. Uh, that's something that uh, I, people need to make sure they're building into their mana base. Mm-hmm. Because if Soul Ring is the only way for you to activate that as well, yeah, <laughs> then you're really setting yourself up for failure.
2: Very very fair. Uh, I'm I'm going to jump to one here that I remember trying to make this card work but 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 just no it's just an absolute no for me and it still shows up in nearly 44,000 decks pre-con effect in full effect here. This is Opal Palace. Opal Palace, I I wish I liked it more than I do, but I just do not care for this card anymore. Um so it can tap to give you a colorless. It doesn't come into play tapped, which is good good for it, but then you can pay a mana and tap it and it will give you a mana. Uh, of your commander's color identity, and if you use that mana to cast your commander, it will enter with additional plus one counters on it, equal to the number of times that it has been cast from the command zone this game. And to be clear, there are still some commanders where I can see why you would want to use this effect to get those bonus plus one counters. There are commanders like Halar the Fire Fletcher, which deal more damage, equal to the number of counters on them. There are commanders like Kosei Penitent Warlord, which cares about having all types of modifications on it so that it can access its final form, basically. Or there are commanders like Skullbriar the walking grave who keeps every counter that you give it that's awesome but aside from those i just do not like this card like this is this is a tempo loss to get that effect at all and usually one or two plus one counters i do not think it is worth it i just yeah this this is a a card that has rankled me a little bit because it it costs two mana to get one mana and that's mm. Yeah, that one doesn't that does, that doesn't work for me. I'm I'm not here for it.
0: Yeah, agreed. It's one that I, I don't know if I ever really ran it. Although I did try it a few times um, in different decks just to test it out. I was always a little bit leery of it, and it's always justified those initial feelings of trepidation. It's I've I've never felt it performed in my decks, and and other than those those initial tests, haven't gone back to that well. Yeah, I,
1: the the expectations for this card. I think a lot of people were overly excited about it. They their expectations were extremely high. When it turns out it's just a medium card, it's fine. If you have a deck that can take advantage of it, then sure. Like if your if your commander is a lord, for example, uh, like Kyler, Sigardian emissary, then sure. Like th- this might be worth looking at it. But if there's just a general value kind of thing that you're looking for, yeah, this isn't going to live up to that because. A lot of times the, the extra mana and you have to be casting your commander quite a few times too. That's a thing. And, and the commander tax adds up, <laughs> right? That's where I think most players kind of like, oh, well, I already have to pay one commander tax. Why do I want to pay two? That's where the, the card falls short.
2: That's just it. Like, Matt, you just mentioned Kyler's Guardian Emissary. Like, I could totally see playing this in a Kyler deck because that deck gives a huge pump to all of your humans for each counter that is on Kyler. That makes sense. But he's five mana to play the first time and he's seven mana to play the second time. And if you're using this thing to play him the second time, technically it's going to cost you eight Mm -hmm. lands to do it instead of seven. This is a commander tax on commander tax.
1: Yep. Ah, No, I don't want that. That's, uh, mm -mm, I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah. You have to be playing a very, very specific commander for Opal Palace to really pay off
0: one that i i I made an attempt to run in a few of my decks over the years was dust bowl this is a a a land that lets you remove lands but unlike the kind of strip mines or the ghost quarters of the world where you sacrifice your land to blow up one of their lands with dust bowl you sacrifice a land you control to blow up one of your opponent's lands and it costs a little bit more to activate than than most of those lands that affect but it allows you a reusable way to targeted to, to deal with lands in a targeted way. So if someone has a cabal coffers, you can blow it up with your Dust Bowl. And normally, you know, if you're playing a strip mine, then you're done. You don't get to blow up anything else. With a Dust Bowl, the theory is you blow up that cabal coffers and then you can also deal with that other person's Nikthos and someone else's Sarah's Sanctum and whatever. <laughs> so if you have problems you have to solve, you can use Dust Bowl to solve multiple problems versus just one. In practice, that was that's in theory. <laughs> Uh, In practice, it just didn't ever really work for me. And what wound up happening was I paid too much mana to blow up the one land I needed to have gone and then didn't blow up anything else. So basically, I was overpaying for, you know, a tectonic edge or a ghost quarter or something. Now, I guess that might not be true everywhere, but I I would guess it probably isn't universal to me because I do tend to play with people who run a lot of really good utility lands. Like there are frequently (laughs) targets for me to blow up. It's just, there's infrequently two targets or three targets for me to blow up. Uh, so this is one that's definitely worked its way back out of my rotation. I, I, I've, I I ran a few and now I'm back to just running tectonic edge or ghost quarter in those
2: slots. Honestly, same. Yeah. I don't even play this in my Titania deck anymore. And that's a deck that specifically cares about me sacrificing as many lands as possible to make five, three elemental creature tokens and Dust Bowl. I'm just kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I'm playing this one anymore. I don't I don't think I need it, actually.
1: See, I've I've kept it in the one deck that I ever put it in. I slept my Omnath Locus of Rage deck. I still keep it there because I have so many ways of replaying lands for my graveyard. But if you don't have ways to do that, where you're setting, so you're not actively setting yourself back to to get one land, then yeah, this probably isn't worth still running around. If you just need that one shot, say somebody has uh, a flipped growing rights of it, yeah, you probably just need to blow that one thing up and then you can proceed. But if you have, if you're just wanting to pick multiple things off. I have ways in that specific deck to replay the land so it's not just losing my own resources. But yeah, if you don't have that way to keep yourself on parity, then you might want to look somewhere else. Very fair. Matt, is there another example here that jumps to mind for you? One card that I definitely have cut from all of my decks that we talked about a few episodes ago when we're talking just on utility lands in general is Alchemist Refuge. Um, Effectively having to pay three mana on attacks to flash in one card that you still have to pay full price on. You can't just get a discount on your spell that just never has stood out to me on a lot of these effects that we talked about kind of with mirror pool having to pay a certain amount of mana just it's not worth that marginal benefit i think i only play one of these types of lands in a dedicated discard deck anymore so alchemist refuge that card specifically has disappointed me too many times but i know that it's not going to disappoint me anymore in the future <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh dang! <laughs> the the one thing I, I I will say with Alchemist Refuge is it's absolutely a super strong card that wins games whenever I see someone else use it, and whenever I've tried to use it, <laughs> it, it it's it's something that taxes me unnecessarily and accomplishes absolutely nothing. Um, and, and I don't know why that is. I mean, if it's it's play style or, or deck brewing style or, or bad luck or what that is. But it's one of those cards that looks really strong in everyone else's hands and feels like an absolute anchor around my neck dragging me down by making me pay extra for spells and not really getting much, much out of it. So it's just one of those weird cards. I think for me and, and, and for whatever reason, it's just not good. But I, <laughs> I, I have seen it absolutely do work. It's just not doing work in my hands, I guess. <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely fair. And frankly, I would also group into this, the card
2: Winding Canyons as well, which is a colorless version. Um And you pay two and tap it. And until end of turn, all of your creature cards uh will be able to, you can play them as as though they had flash and even that one i'm just still kind of like yeah i don't i don't know that i get the best benefit of these even in decks that care specifically about casting stuff on other players turns like rush me Eternity's crafter for example but yeah these are just cards that i'm like eh, you know I this is a lot of mana to pay it, it does actually kind of feel to me like dust bowl like dust bowl three mana and tap that thing that's that's a big investment and these two this these, these kind of feel similar to me uh, in my head. And it's just, uh, it takes nearly my whole turn just to pay for these effects. And I could just play stuff that already has flash or cool instance instead. And that's kind of where I've gotten to.
1: And there, there are a few examples of some specific cards that give card types flash. Uh, Raf Capuchin is one of those that mm-hmm. there's, there's some examples that are very specific, that give a, a some of your cards some timing flexibility, but that also gives you access to a whole category of cards and it's an ongoing thing it's not a one time effect or a one turn effect like some of these other cards so if you want this effect play Vidalcan or right? and I know that's easy to say when Vidalcan or is kind of an expensive card these days oh yeah but Raff, if you ha- there's something specific in almost whatever deck you're doing that's going to give you access to instant speed on non instant on non instant cards uh, so, yeah, look at cards like Graph, Capuchin and, and other cards in that nature instead of one-time shots like Alchemist Refuge.
2: I, I think that's a very fair thing to say. I mean, the, the Vidalcan already conversation, good lord, the can of worms that you just opened there, Matthew. <laughs> right, right. Because, uh, like, there's a lot of discourse about that one. But, yeah, I think the the point to take home from what you said especially is, like, there are ways to get consistent value. That some of these utility lands provide the the one time value isn't as helpful when there are cards, that, a lot of different cards that you can play that provide consistent value in other ways. Orrery is one example. A greater uh, number of instances another example. Like there are also just certain playstyles that will care about instance more than others. And so yeah, and in any case, these are just some lands that feel like eh, maybe
0: we've sort of eclipsed their time a little bit. I think it's definitely the case for for ones on here as well. In addition to the the situations. Um, where they're just not good in my hand. Yeah, they're, they're, a lot of these are ones <laughs> that have just been aged out by by both the game changing around them and better alternatives cropping up for you to run in your decks. So you have to take something out and, and, and these are the ones that tend to go for sure. Fair enough. Hey, uh,
2: question for you guys here. You know, we've talked about a bunch of these uh, these lands that we're no longer playing. I mean, I feel I feel like we have to, as our final example for this episode, we probably have to mention Temple of the False God, don't we? Oh,
1: get, no, get out of here. No, we don't. <laughs> oh, come I'm, on. But the discourse, man, the discourse, all of the conversation. <laughs> on behalf of the internet, I'm mad at you.
2: You mentioned Vidalcon Ori. Temple I, of the False God has just as much discourse about it. <laughs> but at least answer me this. Do you play Temple in your decks? No. No. Okay, Dana, do you play your Temple of the False God in your decks?
0: I don't... Think I do. I think I have it in one deck currently. Okay. I, I I am not as hard on it as some folks. I understand the problems with it, but I do think if you are playing in a, a relatively efficient deck that has a lot of draw, um, particularly if your maybe commander has draw baked into it and has a low low curve, I think you could be comfortable running this. I, I don't think it's one of those cards where people are just like don't ever run Temple of the False God. I, I do think it has uses. I just think you need to be very cautious and, and about where you use it. I do think it's in in part because the precon effect is in way too many decks, but I, I don't think it's as bad as maybe it gets made out. I, I do think there are ways to make it be a perfectly fine card. Oh man, somewhere Benny Smith
2: <laughs> at Blair yeah, no kidding <laughs>
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's what we're all thinking about.
2: He is somewhere rolling. <laughs> He's just like, wait, my my my. The bat signal has gone out of like people talking about Temple. I know that this is a, a very a trampled conversation, but you know it's still showing up in a hundred and thirty thousand decks out there. Like twelve percent of decks that can play this land are playing this land, and that is worth taking note of. But for me, in terms of like actual experience, I think it's important to look at the material. Are we playing this in our decks, Dana? It sounds like you might be the only one of the three of us who's playing this in a deck and it is just that in a deck yeah so i think that that is a takeaway for me is that like the pontificating about it and the philosophizing about it isn't nearly as important as the practicality of huh looks like we're not playing this and this is definitely a card that i know we've all tried to play before for sure so it just felt like it belonged in the conversation even if it made matt mad at me
1: it's um, i'm not going to forgive you for at least like eight more minutes (laughs) (laughs) eight more
2: (laughs) gotcha I I think this is just another example of how we were two ships passing in the night, my dude. This is just an episode where we... All right. I I have a a closing question for you guys, uh, I suppose. Like... Matt, do you think that there are any lands that, like, you hold fast to? Like, are there, especially utility lands, not even just color fixers, um, although those as well, are there lands where you're like, you know what, I can't see myself ever taking these out of a deck. These are the ones I'm absolutely keeping for sure. Like Dana with his reliquary towers, for example. That's his safety blanket. You know, he's literally called it that in in past episodes. Um, Do you have any examples of those for you? Yeah, basic lands.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, not being facetious, I, I, the pain lands, I don't think I should be as attached to as I am anymore. Those I, I still have in a few decks. I think part of it is just because I can get them in old borders and I just love old (laughs) borders. So that's purely sentimental and completely irrational. Uh, don't know why. Uh, but also there's a few lands like the horizon canopies of the world, that land cycle, I'm I'm a big fan of sure just because compared to the cycling lands that always come to play tapped these paying a little bit of life that maybe that's Dana rubbing off on me where I'm okay paying <laughs> life to to get some resources and then drawing cards later I would say those two land cycles I'm really attached to I don't know why I probably shouldn't be but but that that is the answer. I love it. That th- those are
2: good answers, especially the the ones that you can cash in to draw a card right from the mana base itself. I, I think those
0: are really good answers. Uh, Dana, same question coming at you though. Um, you know, you, you mentioned my safety blanket in Reliquary Tower. Um, I'm not going to argue for its its efficacy or say it's super powerful. It's just a card I like to have in my decks. Um, another one in a similar vein would be Homeward Path. Oh, sure, so you, a, a card you can just tap to to return creatures to their owner's control. Um. I just like having the, the, the idea there that I have a land that can just give my stuff back if someone tries to steal it. Um, so that feels good. But but maybe unlike Reliquary Tower, I mean, Homeward Path has just won me games. I've been in situations where, you know, someone has, has cast an insurrection and tried to swing at me without paying attention, and I can just tap Homeward Path mid- mid-swing and make that problem go away. Nice. Um, there's, there's at least one case I can think of years ago where someone cast Bribery on me. <laughs> and didn't look to see if there was a homeward path. And I'm like, you absolutely can spend all your mana to get my best creature into play for me for free. Go ahead and do that. Um, so I get it, it's it's a, a, a actually very useful card as well. So that's one I, I tend to I think. I I don't have it in every deck, but it's in most decks. And whenever I go to add a new land, I look at Homer Path and I'm like, I just can't cut it out of that deck. So so that's that's one that I'm gonna will have a tough time ever removing from anything.
2: I like those answers. I like those answers a lot. I I think I have two where like I try to force these in almost everywhere that can play them. And I feel like I'm usually correct to do so, even in decks that have like a lot of colors. So Mosswort Bridge is very, very good to me. The mono green enters tapped, and it's still worth it because it can give you free stuff. You get to hide away a card underneath it. And if you have enough power in play, then you can cast the thing that's underneath it for free just by having a bunch of creatures in play. Like this is a card that I've put into my four color deck. This is a card I put into my mono color deck i love this thing because having a lot of creatures generally is just what green does so this card always feels like it is a land that also draws me a free card later and i i love playing that little hideaway game and then the other one i'd uh, shout out here would be oh high market like tap sacrifice gain a <laughs> life i love high market that that feels to me just absolutely incredible if someone's about to lignify my commander no, I'm going to sacrifice it so that I can get it back into my command zone and replay it later where it's not going to be a tree. Or if someone's trying to steal mutation it. I don't want it to be an indestructible bug. I want to be able to save my commander. Or if someone's trying to steal it from me. Dana, you just mentioned insurrection. I like being able to sacrifice my stuff in general. I mean, you know me. I'm Mr. Aristocrats and Necromancy. So sacrificing stuff from my mana base feels amazing. But it also feels good as a form of rescuing my commander from stuff. Sort of like you mentioned with the, the path there as well. So I feel like we're kind of on the same wavelength. We're just coming about it in very different ways here.
0: Yeah, uh, utility lands that that save our butts. I think everyone likes those.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. These are interesting things. I think it's, at the end of the day, it comes back to just one of those things that we were always preaching on this podcast is just being very, very intentional about the lands that you're choosing to play, but the cards that you're putting into a deck, make sure that you have a reason for them. Because just playing the stuff that color fixes or the stuff that looks good, well, it deserves a little bit of critical thought to see which cards are actually reaping the most reward and which cards might be obstructing your path a little bit. I didn't mean for that to be a pun on the homeward path that we had just mentioned, but it accidentally <laughs> became one. And here we Matt's are. Matt's not laughing at me because we're still two ships in the night on our humor. This we, episode, we're,
1: I, I was grinning and smirking and acknowledging <laughs> acknowledging the little flub up.
2: I, I'm happy to hear that, Matt. Our humor <laughs> will get onto the same ship, Eventually. by the end. Eventually,
1: hopefully, go. hopefully that hasn't sailed yet.
2: all right um anyway yeah listeners we would really love to hear from you about the lands that you stopped playing are there color fixers that you no longer think are fixing the colors well enough are there utility lands that you aren't playing and do you have utility lands that you really feel like you try to put everywhere and that you're certainly going to make sure that you never cut from your decks we would love to hear from you but with that we are going to call this episode to a close and if our listeners want to get in touch with us fellas where is it that they can contact you matt
1: so you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast where we have guests on every single week. And it's always a super great time, so make sure you tune in to watch all the fun over there. And Dana.
0: You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast.
2: And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at Trekcast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves, and we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast for cool, custom Trek sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but un- Until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.
0: Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.